Hi folks, and thanks for listening to this Total Check podcast. This is the conversation Martin had with Matt McGrahan about bogus self-employment, particularly in the entertainment industry. And I think it's a really, really important podcast. Uh, and I want you to share it wide and let people know because it impacts all of us. Everybody who is hoping for services, whether it be in health, housing, education, it's underfunded because of the way certain the way certain deals are done around types of employment. Uh, if you can, please support us, help keep this show on the road. It's patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. The link is in the podcast you're listening to right now. Uh, and there's a ton of extra content right there. You will have missed out on our conversation with DJ Walsh in University Hospital Waterford. Keep hearing how this is uh, some sort of utopia. DJ fills us in on what's happening there. We've also got a conversation with Issam Adwan in, in Palestine around the new Israeli government. And coming up later on this afternoon we have a conversation with Killian Woods about his stories on housing so all of that is available in the Patreon feed and all of it is ad free no please you don't have to listen to me beg one more time patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack please help us please join us in 2023 try it for the month and I won't delay any further enjoy the podcast hello and welcome to the tortoise shack podcast today I'm going to be talking to an absolutely fabulous musician but before we get to that I'd like to have a little listen to his music. was Matt McGranahan playing there. Matt, that was a fabulous piece of music. Thank you very much, Martin. Thank you. Matt, you're a professional, and I mean professional musician. Will you tell me some of the the steps you've gone through to become a professional musician? We don't really fully understand as professional musicians, but I mean, it starts from, it starts from taking an interest in music at a young age. It starts from lessons it starts from all those things going through learning your instrument learning the craft um, through your teenage years persevering with it at the hands of bullies because you know very often playing an instrument isn't that cool especially at secondary school and especially a fiddle or violin whichever yeah. you want to call it uh, different story for playing the electric guitar of course everybody wants to know you but so you you know you you anyone that gets through the gauntlet of secondary school as a musician and, and, and continues to, to play it or perform it or want to continue as a profession. Um, they, they've, at that stage, they've you know, maybe done seven, eight, nine, ten years of hard work and dedication to it. And then you're really only, you're only starting. You've got to go and do the, the college end of it then as well. Yeah. Uh, well, a lot of people don't do that in, in, in the profession. But I, I chose to do that in my mid-20s to go back to university and study it even further. Um, but, you know, even in your early 20s, when you when you start into this career, uh, very often you're only starting the apprenticeship, uh, the unrecognized informal apprenticeship, which I'll be honest with you, can last 10, 15, 20 years before you start to be recognized by your peers. So, so it takes you know, 20 years to become an overnight success, Matt. Pretty much. Well, that's what Val Dudigan said years ago, 17 years to become an overnight success. Now, I was talking to Tony in advance of doing this podcast, and Tony said to me, who has Matt played with? And I, I tried to explain to Tony that it's not really who has Matt played with, it's who has played with Matt. <laughs> and, and that you have, you you are an extremely well-known musician in Ireland, extremely well-known by everybody. Well, I guess, on the, you know, I'm from a, a trad background, Um Originally, and you know, during my my teenage years, I would have played a lot with different professional trad musicians uh, in various capacities. Uh, would have recorded and been featured on TV programs and things like that. Uh, I've worked along with Dolores Keane, Mary Black, sort of from that ilk. Um, I went on then to do, I, I did an awful lot of work uh, in the early noughties. I suppose I, I come from the border, so I, not, I did a huge amount of work. 
all through the noughties on cross-border, cross-community work, yeah. and things like that, um, was hugely important. Uh, where music music had been used as a tool, a divisive tool for so many years, we decided to, to use the opportunity to see what it can do to, to bring people together and to really unite people. And, and that was very, very worthwhile projects, you know, um, to actually see the, the, the fruits of that. I mean, I, I've, I've, I've performed in Stormont, I've performed in Dargavahi Road, I've performed in uh, the Falls Road, I've performed in the Shankill Road, uh, you know, I, I've I've performed an an Irish Nocturne for the twelfth of July celebrations. And music is universal, though, Matt. It is universal. It's it, a it language really everyone is. speaks. Yeah, it's a language that's it's built within us genetically. It's genetically within us more so than any language, more so than any uh, language of words. It's actually it's quite incredible, quite frightening, and you kind of start to appreciate the science behind it. And, uh, it's, a, and it's evocative of memory too. I mean, music and memory go hand in hand. I think it comes pretty close to smell for, yeah. for, for memory. It's one of those things. It's, it's, there's a great line by, by Oscar Wilde, which I cannot just remember the exact thing, but it says, after playing Chopin, I, I can recall memories that I've never experienced, people that I've never met. And so I, I think, I can't remember the full line, unfortunately, but that's the power of music. It makes you feel things that you didn't really think you, you could feel, uh, emotions that you didn't know you had. Yeah, It's incredibly, incredibly powerful. It uh, is. It's, and they're only starting to realize, Martin, actually, in, in recent years, they're doing research into music as a tool for uh, curing cancer, for beating cancer, for beating the cancer cells, because everything has a frequency in nature. Yes. yes. And if you can find the frequency that resonates with that particular cell, it'll self-destruct in the way that you would often have made like it. Like a glass. Yeah, yeah. Break the glass, the soprano breaking the glass. This, this is actually starting, they're doing research in this, and they're starting to realize this is the effect that it can have. A very, very safe new method of treating cancer. Matt, before we get on to why we're here to talk, you write music as well. You you hmm. you don't just play; you create music as well. That was uh, the, the opening piece was a piece that I wrote. Yeah, um, I write write all kinds of music, slow music, Irish trad music. Um, starting to write songs as well, and yeah, yeah. And we're going to have a little listen to this piece, Matt. This is this is the rest of that piece we were listening to at the beginning. Before we get on to why you're really here to have this conversation with me. Again, that was a great piece of music, Matt. Really enjoyed listening to that. Matt, there is a problem in your industry. And there is yeah. a problem. And it was uh, it's a problem that has brought you and I together. Would you mind explaining the problem, please, within your industry? Three simple words. Bogus self-employment. It's and right. Ex explain how that works within the music industry, please, Matt. So the music industry... And this is not just music, this is entertainment and the wider arts industry as well. Yeah. You know, and that's, it's a, it's a huge, huge industry. Like huge we, sector. we, we have spoken, we, we have crossed with, with other parts of the entertainment industry before we made this podcast. So we know that this is mm. rife throughout the entertainment industry. 
Well, within the music industry, you know, you have people who are genuinely self-employed. Um, and for a long period of time, I was probably one of those soldiers that, um, you know, people booked me. I cancelled bookings. I took bookings. I looked after my own diary. I did everything like that. And I was kind of had the freedom to do that. Um, then after I, I suppose, after I finished with university, I realized that I needed to, to kind of get work. Uh, and that sort of freedom of youth was kind of far behind me, you know. Yeah. Uh, I was in my late 20s at the time. So I started working for bands. And uh, I, I guess particularly, well, I didn't realize it for, for quite a number of years or until a few years ago that one of the reasons that I went working for bands was because it actually meant that I didn't have to think about filling the diary. I didn't have to think about that. I just give them a commitment to X amount of days work or that I'd be available. Yeah. And they went and did all the hard work, like get secure the book and do all that. Then I turned up and did my work. And so I've been doing that for years, but as self-employed. Yeah. Now, let's explain how this works, Matt. The music industry is a small enough industry in Ireland, and we'll be really honest about it. It's a small industry. There are very few big players within that industry, but the industry is controlled by a few big players. They make all the bookings for all the bands at all the weddings and the shows and the concerts and these guys control the market. That's what they do. They control the market. But what they're doing is they are treating you as an employee, yet labeling you as self-employed. Am I correct about that, Matt? That's correct. Well, just to go back on, on, on one thing, I, I, there's, it's a small industry, and at the same time, it's, it's a big industry as well. And there are lots... There are lots of different uh, variables, I suppose, but within certain pockets and certain genres or subgenres or certain sort of subsectors within the larger industry, that is correct. What you said that there are some people who who kind of control an awful lot, and then outside of that, there are there's, there's very healthy competition, yeah. and very healthy business happening. You know, so I don't. I don't you particularly don't want to tar, want to tar with everything yeah. with that, okay? But there are certain subsectors and certain areas within it where it is irrefutable that people are being treated as employees. Now, we've, seen this, we've seen this very clearly with RTE, and it's a very, very similar situation to the actors in RTE, where yeah. they've been told for years by Revenue, Social Welfare, and RTE that they are self-employed. And yet when you casually look at the rules and it was only a casual glance that the Eversheds did. And um, well, these guys were never unemployed in the first or never self-employed in the first place. They should have been employees all along. And it was revenue, social welfare and their employer misclassifying them, working together to misclassify the worker as self-employed. And it's pretty much the same in the industry you're involved with. Yeah, I mean, when I first learned the term bogus self-employment, I think it was about 2017 or 18, uh, and it was in the autumn of that year, and I Googled and I went on Revenue and I found this checklist, you know, the... Yes, yes, the, you know, code of the, practice. You know, the code of practice, you know. And when I looked at it, and, and I looked at it with my colleagues, and, we, and, and I showed it to them, you know, we ticked nine of the 10 boxes to say we should be employees and we ticked one of the other boxes to say that we should be self-employed. So off the back of that, Matt, you wrote to the scope section of the Department of Social Protection and what the scope section of the Department of Social Protection do is they make insurability of employment decisions. Are you an employee or self-employed? If I even go back a year or two before that, Martin, uh, is that I when when I had this information, I thought if I ask for a scope decision now, I'm gonna I'm gonna put myself out of a job. Yeah. Within a couple of months, there's just there's no and 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 I have no protection whatsoever. I'm gonna be out of a job. Now let me just clarify that for for people. 
uh, the vast majority of people who ask for a scope section decision end up getting fired for asking for a scope section decision. They have no protections under law for being fired because the employer is claiming that they are self-employed. Um, this is recognized by the Department of Social Welfare as a problem, but they have done absolutely nothing to provide any kind of protection for workers who seek a scope section decision. And when a worker is seeking a scope section decision, as in Matt's industry, where it's an entire industry or large parts of an industry which are bogus self-employed, then you are de facto a whistleblower on fraud within that industry. That's correct. That's correct. Because one of the the main reason that I discovered about the term, discovered the term bogus self-employment in the first place, was because someone else was threatening to blow the whistle on wrongdoing with company that I was working for, and as a result of that, I uh, discovered or tried to figure out how can I make sure that I'm protected, and my colleagues were incredibly concerned about themselves as well. And I thought, how can we make sure that they're protected? Yeah. I, I was in a, a very lucky position. I didn't have a mortgage. I still don't. I don't own my own home. I, as a musician, most musicians don't. They don't even have the aspiration of that ever happened. So that, that, that'll tell you a lot about the industry. But I wanted to try and figure out a way. How, how, do, how do I protect myself? And as well as that, if I can do that, then I can give this information to my colleagues as well. Yeah, and you so, do you do represent your colleagues as well? Well, look, I, I wrote at the time. Uh, I, I decided at the time, do do I you know do the scope thing, put my, my head on the line, or do I try and figure out a way of bringing this to the attention of politicians? This is, I mean, this sounds so naive now, you know, coming from the experience that you have. Do I? No, maybe no one knows about this. Maybe I should inform them. I, I yeah. actually, <laughs> that's exactly you know? what I thought initially as well, Matt. It is really. Yeah. And so I knocked on doors and I sent emails and, and I sent an email to Minister Regina Doherty at the time. And I got the, dear Mr. McGrann, thank you for your email. We will be in touch in due course. That's three, four years ago. I haven't yeah. heard a thing since. But I, I'm one of the concerns I put in that email was well, if I go to Scope, which is the avenue that I know now is open to me, I'm going to lose my job. Hey, we'll come to that. But, you know, at the time I spoke um, and I had a couple of meetings with Senator Jed Nash at the time. And, and I, I learned a great deal from him about the, the, the state of play of bogus self-employment and legislation and where it was at. Um, and, of course, I learned about you, at that time, um, never got to meet you until only, I suppose, la- early this year. Yeah, our paths finally year. crossed. Yeah. But I, I knew about you then, and I knew about your work. Um, and also I talked to some journalists and that. And that's how I learned about yourself as well and followed up a lot of what you were doing online. You went um, to Scope eventually, Matt. Yes. Yeah. So now, tell, tell us about what happened with Scope. So I went, I went to Scope and took all the information, filled out the INS1 form. Um, the other party did the same. I supplied additional information. Got the result back in, in December, end of November, sorry, 2020, uh, to say, you know, that you are a de facto employee since the 1st of January 2014. That's right. So all along, when revenue, social welfare and your employer we're telling you that you are self-employed. It's important. It's these three bodies telling you you are self-employed. But none of them actually applied the rules and regulations nor the precedents that were handed down from the courts to make that decision. They made a political decision that you were self-employed. And when the law was applied to that decision, well, lo and behold, you weren't self-employed at all. Isn't that the case? That's the case. And and it's actually bizarre when you say it like that and spell it out, that these three bodies subscribed to a decision and, the sta- and a particular status quo relating to me, of which I have no input or decision uh, in my own status. No, no. Yet- and it's important to point out, too, that employment status is not 
what about about what you want to be or what you're happy to be or what you'd like to be. You either fit the legal criteria or you don't. It's that simple. It doesn't matter a million times whether you or the employer want you to be self-employed. That doesn't matter. None of that matters. You must fit the legal criteria. That's all that matters. And you have fitted the legal criteria to be an employee since 2014. You warned Regina Tardy and everybody else you spoke to that you would be fired as soon as you sought a scope decision. Now you sought and got your scope decision. Were you fired, Matt? Not immediately. Because we were in the middle of COVID. So um, there was no work. So from March 15th, 2020, I wasn't actually working. And during that time, from June 2020, I and another couple of guys in the industry started representing the industry to government to fight for supports for the thousands of musicians who had been cast aside and forgotten about. Now, the Uh, reason you were cast aside and forgotten about as musicians is because officially you were self-employed. Correct. But you're first of a kind to show, no, we're not self-employed. So the fact that you were excluded from from pandemic payments in the first place is because you were misclassified as self-employed. So you're getting hit on the double, the treble, the quadruple. That's right. That's right. And and while we were watching, while we were watching employed musicians were employed by RTE Orchestra, uh, the symphony orchestra and so on. Every other musician in the country who, who works at a, a band, which essentially, that's what an orchestra is, only on a bigger level. That's right. And, you know, you'll know this as well, that over the past five, six years, and maybe the last decade, there has been several cases all around Europe and the world of the misclassification of bogus self-employed musicians in orchestras. Yeah, that's true. And there, there is no difference in being in a, in a band that's three people or a band of 80 people. You can call it what you want, but someone is telling you when to turn up, what to do, when to do it, how to do it, uh, and, where to do it. And in reality, all you bring to your work is your labor. That's all you're bringing to it. Yeah. You're bringing your labor. That's all you're bringing. And the small tools of the trade. As well, you might have you know? to bring a, 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 an instrument, a fiddle or whatever it is you're bringing. Yeah. But they are considered the small tools of the trade. Mm-hmm. You know, if if you don't bring your violin, somebody else may have a violin for you. They may have a stand-in violin for you. You may not be able to play on the night because you didn't bring your violin with you. These things happen. And yeah. it does happen. But that doesn't make you self-employed. It's like, oh, God, I don't know, a doctor with a stethoscope in a hospital. Does the stethoscope make the doctor self-employed? It doesn't. It cannot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and the other thing that they're trying to say is, you know, because you provide your own transport. In the case of where they've applied this to couriers, you provide your own transport. And, and that's, I, that, that's called the owner-driver model. And we will come back to that in a couple yeah. of minutes, Matt. But you did get fired. Eventually, you got fired. Yeah. When the industry yeah. started back up again, you were gone. As soon as the industry was coming to, to begin. So, you know, in late 2021. Now, at this stage, they, they were appealing the thing as well. So now it was under appeal. Now, and, before and you go one. on appeal, let's explain what appeal is. Within the Department of Social Welfare, the scope section is an office of the Department of Social, Social Welfare. Also, an office of the Department of Social Welfare is the Social Welfare Appeals Office. Now, it is me- merely an office of the Department of Social Welfare. It is manned by social welfare employees who serve at the pleasure of the minister and can return to the department at any time. So there is no defining line between the Social Welfare Appeals Office and the department. And indeed, the Chief Appeals Officer of the Social Welfare, of the Social Welfare Appeals Office has a dual role as a senior manager 
one of six senior managers in the Department of Social Welfare. So there is no Chinese wall between the two of these organizations. So what you have is you have one office of the Department of Social Welfare applying the legislation the precedents handed down from the courts, which is the scope section, and they make a decision that you are an employee. The employer then gets to appeal that to the Social Welfare Appeals Office. Now, the Social Welfare Appeals Office are meant to have, firstly, reasons for appeal, and secondly, they're meant to act on the exact same rules that the scope section act upon. So the the employer in your case, as nearly always happens when a decision goes against an employer, they appeal it to the Social Welfare Appeals Office. So it was under appeal to the Social Welfare Appeals Office. And what happened to you, Matt? I got dismissed, sacked, fired, whatever way you want to call it. I suffered the large sugar moment. Um, and it was it wasn't even put to me in such a blunt, direct fashion. Uh, the status of my employment, the queries that I had around it were discussed openly in front of my colleagues at a, a meeting where we were all called and present. I thought it was wholly inappropriate to discuss anything like that since it was under appeal and there was a process of investigation happening. It was discussed. Uh, so as an employee, which I was at the time, uh, all, you know, my uh, private information was, was being discussed. And and the, 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 the meeting was held to inform us of what was going to be happening the following, in, the, in the weeks following the meeting because we were expecting um, a timeline to be announced by the T-shirt of how the industry would reopen, which it subsequently did, sort of mid-September, early October, uh, we were informed of all the huge amounts of work that were going to be coming down the track, and we'd all get back to work again, you know, back to doing 180, 200 gigs a year. And uh, a couple of weeks later, I got the email just to say how disappointed we were that you decided to terminate your, or not to, was to discontinue your services to us. I had never sent them that email. So, no. Yeah, I was sacked. You were unfairly dismissed. Unfairly dismissed on the spot. Um, Not only that, they did have big discussion about the industry-wide discussion about if your case succeeds, they said that they will not pay anybody as an employee. I'm right about that, Matt, am I? They said they discussed the issue of becoming an employee at the meeting and said that it is not happening with them. Under no circumstances is anyone going to be an employee. So they didn't even recognize the legal decision that had been made by scope. I, now, I just totally did not recognize that. Whatsoever. They just literally shit all over it, Matt, and said, we don't totally. recognize that decision. And if anybody in this industry thinks they're going to be an employee, you're wrong. You're not going to be, and you'll be blacklisted, is basically what they told everybody. Correct. 100%. Okay. Your appeal still hasn't been heard, Matt. I think it was heard. Well, let's, let's, we will go the official route on it, Matt. <laughs> you have not been at an appeal to have your, your decision overturned by the scope section, have you? That's correct. I have not. No. And I refuse to partake in it. Matt, tell me why you refuse to partake in it. I refuse to participate in the appeals process because... Um, they have not provided me with the copies of the test cases which the Social Welfare Appeals Office have used in, det- in, in making decisions in the past. Um, okay. Now, we know now, that they now, exist. Yeah. Now, we know that test cases exist, and we know that test cases exist because for 23 years I've been fighting with them about the use of test cases. Mm-hmm. They've been using test cases and the approach of test cases since 1993 in the Social Welfare Appeals Office. Now, the problem with this is you can't have test cases. There's no such thing as group or class actions in Ireland. You simply can't have them. Each case must be assessed on its 
own merits. Occupations which appear to be the same may differ in the actual terms and conditions. And that's a quote. And that's a quote from the scope section, which is taken from the code of practice, which is taken from the precedents handed down from the courts. So that's cast iron written in stone. You can't decide that a group of people are self-employed. There is no more legitimacy to saying all musicians are self-employed as there is to saying all journalists are self-employed, all architects, all solicitors. You cannot do it. It's sim- No legislation exists within law to do this. Now, we know from a fact that since 1992, the Social Welfare Appeals Office has been using and taking the approach of test cases. Not only do we know it's a fact, we know that in 2002, then Minister of Social Welfare, Dermot O'Hearn, wrote to the Ombudsman and said, yes, we do use test cases. It's in an Ombudsman's report that they use test cases. From that time up until January 2019, the Social Welfare Appeals Officer, Minister Faradkar, uh, even Minister uh, Regina Doherty has admitted, admitted that they use test cases. And they use test cases. Now, Minister Doherty said they use, they make decisions by group and by class, but she refused to call that a test case. Semantics, just semantics, refusing to put the word on it. She did admit that what they do is outside of the law. Yeah. So you knew test cases existed. You wrote to the Social Welfare Appeals Office and you said, look, I'm expected to go in here. The rules are different than Scope's rules. So I need to see sight of the test cases so I know what these other rules are that you're using and what ones may be of use to me and what ones I feel I can argue against and say, no, you've no legal right to make a group and class decision. Mm -hmm. And what did they tell you? What has been the reply from the Social Welfare Appeals Office? Well, there, there have been a few different ways of how the reply. So the first reply was that this office has not used test cases under the tenure of this Chief Appeals Office. So essentially since 2015. When I went back and asked for the cases that existed before 2015, they came back and said, I think something along to the, the effects that they do not have test cases. Then the I, I refused to participate in the appeal. Without the test they, case. They, yeah. they went ahead with the appeal. When the other team's legal team uh, raised concern, they stopped the appeal. Yeah. They and wouldn't then, stop it for you when you raised no, no, concerns. No, no, no. But they stopped it for the barrister. And they did a, what I think, what, what seems to be some type of a pseudo-investigation. I got a letter from that. And they said in the letter dated the 16th of May, I think it was, we told you there were no test cases. That's not what they said in that letter. That letter, they said, we do, this office has not used test cases under the tenure of the current chief appeals office. Now, before you go any further, in 2019, that chief appeals officer was in the Social Welfare Office Committee in December 2019. And she said the same thing. She said, we have uh, not used uh, test cases under my tenure Mm -hmm. but uh, Senator Alice Mary Higgins under cross-examination got the chief appeals officer to admit that yes indeed the approach of test cases was used under her tenure so the fact is that the test cases have been used under the tenure of the current chief appeals officer most notably in 2006 in the approach of test cases with 16 construction workers. And this is all documented evidence. The department have this, I have this, you have this, SIPO has this. And the reason we're going to come to SIPO on this is after the chief appeals officer denied the use of test cases in the Oireachtas Committee in 2019, I made a complaint to SIPO. And I said to SIPO, that's a lie. 
they do use test cases. Here's the documented evidence going back to 1992. All they've done is issue a verbal denial saying they don't. Yet the documented evidence and the Oroctus report, uh, or sorry, the Ombudsman report, where Dermot Ahern says, yes, we use test cases. So it's an absolute fact that they use test cases. And Sipo said to me, and only to me, we agree that she gave erroneous information to the Oroctus Committee in her denial of test cases, i.e., the denial of test cases by anybody, by a chief appeals officer, by a minister, by anybody, is erroneous information. And that's what SIPO decided. But then SIPO refused to follow their own guidelines and refused to inform anybody in the department or the chief appeals officer that they had made this decision, which Heather Humphreys has since called out and said that SIPO have refused to follow their own guidelines. Guidelines. Now, why this is important to you, Matt, is because it's a fact that they use test cases. It's a fact that those test cases impact on your insurability of employment, yet they denied them to you on several occasions and insisted on going ahead with appeal, knowing that they use unlawful test cases. Have I got that right, Matt? 100%. 100 right. That's exactly what it is. I just, I found the uh, quotations and what they said to me here from the letters, Martin. And so the letter 16th of May says, a sample case approach has not been taken by the Social Welfare Appeals Office during the tenure of the current Chief Appeals Officer, which commenced in 2015, in any case of an appeal where the classification of a worker as an employee or self-employed is the issue under appeal. All such appeals are determined on a case-by-case basis and on the particular facts of each appeal. Now, I'll just fast-forward then to July, uh, 14th of July, where... This year, Matt. This year as well. So two months after 16th of May. And this letter was sent to me and the other party to obviously allay the concerns of the barrister who had the appeal stopped. Um, And and I'll just quote you what they said here. Uh, On the 24th of May, the scheduled oral hearing opened. Particular company was represented by all the rest. Um, And it says, I decided to open the appeals process and bring the appelling company up to date and listen to their response before deciding how to proceed in light of your stated unwillingness to not participate in the process. Now, you're not unwilling to participate. You want to participate. In fact, I've asked them to uh, direct it to the circuit court so I could participate uh, under the the full protection of the law and the legislation, which they are unwilling to do. And under oath as well, which is really important. It has to be all done under oath and transparently. So it says in this letter states on the 16th of May, the SWAO confirmed that it had no such sample cases. Now, again, it didn't confirm that. I'll just repeat. It says on the 16th of May, a sample case approach has not been taken by the Social Welfare Appeals Office. That does not mean it does not have test cases. Yeah, and I, I have to explain where sample came from because sample is quite important to this story. Between uh, 1992 and January 2019, nobody had any problem admitting to test cases. And I mean, absolutely nobody, not ministers, not senior civil servants, nobody. And they put it in writing and they admitted to it in dual questions. But in 2019, the prospect of coming up to an Oroctus committee, the Oroctus Social Welfare Committee raised its head. And they knew for the first time in nearly 30 years, they were going to have to be explained the use of test cases. So a decision was made in the Department of Social Welfare when Regina Doherty was the minister that they would deny the use of test cases, subject the word or insert the word sample case instead of test case, and then retrospectively apply that going all the way back 30 years. So that documents that clearly say test case are now being called sample cases by the department. 
And those are the facts. It's an absolute lie. It's utter corruption on the part of Regina Doherty. Absolute utter corruption. Without a doubt, Mark, I mean, it's just test cases exist. That's it's, it's undeniable at this stage. And the only thing, the proof is the, is the reality of people's situation where people are misclassified and people are being treated as self-employed. That is the proof. And the only thing that they're putting up to try and counteract that or contradict it is verbal denials. Yeah, that's yeah. It. There isn't a single document within the entire Department of Social Welfare that says we do not use test cases, and here's how we do not use test yeah. cases. The, the, all they've done is come into committees and into me- into meetings where masses of written documentation from the department itself, from ministers, from senior civil servants, all saying quite happily, we use test cases. Mm. And now they're just walking into committees and saying, no, we don't. And the reason they're doing it in committees is that they now know that committees can't make a decision on the veracity of statements made. And they Mm. can't. If I give masses, which I have done, of written, provable, documented evidence then a civil servant can just walk in and say, go, that's not true. We don't do that without a shred of evidence to yeah. prove that they don't do it. And committees can't make a decision on who's telling the truth and who's lying. And the civil servants are playing it to all it's worth. And yeah. then when SIPO get a complaint, SIPO are saying, yeah, they're lying, but we're not going to do anything about it. Yeah. But the civil servants are writing the rule book for how the committees operate. That's right. That's right. So, the committee systems is, is, is fucked. It's fucked. It's revenue, say, that um, re- couriers, motorcycle couriers, yeah. are treated as self-employed on the basis of a social welfare appeals officer's decision. Okay. Uh, that's a test case. Because the definition right. of a test case means that you're setting up uh, the parameters uh, for a group of people, yes, and and for uh, circumstances that come after. So you're setting a precedent. That's, yes. that's the, you know you're setting a precedent for a group of people, and you're setting the parameters. That is what a test case is. That is what that decision does. It it it, it, it it's, it's very everything about it is a test case. It, it fulfills legally, the entire the, definition of a test case. And really, the only reason we're, we're having to argue this is because from January 2019, the department have denied test cases where for 30 years beforehand, yeah. they absolutely 100% on paper repeatedly, repeatedly ag- uh, admitted to using test cases. Re- Revenue, you had a document up until, was it 2019 or 2020? At, at the end works. of 20. Revenue had the whole courier thing up online up until the end of 2018, yeah. where they say all couriers are self-employed based on a based social health appeals yeah. officer's decision. They took that down at the end of 2018 while the Oireachtas Social Welfare Committee and the PAC investigate the issue. And then they put it up at the beginning of this year again mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. all those investigations had passed. So the Just actual... There. It's their back on revenues website again. It's madness. It's madness. And so if you're looking at proof of, if you need evidence of test cases, here you have revenue saying, sorry, you have, you have it been said for 20 odd years. Then, you know, it's only in recent few years that they start to deny this. But here you have revenue saying, saying that we're treating motorcycle couriers as self-employed or because of a decision of a social welfare appeals office decision. And the proof of that and the evidence that you need is that motorcycle couriers and couriers are registered as self-employed and paying tax as self-employed. Now, yeah. just because someone says that's not what's happened, we don't use test cases, that doesn't mean that the evidence changes. doesn't exist. Yeah, the evidence still exists. They haven't provided any evidence. If they provided evidence by saying, no, no, all those couriers are employees. No, or some of them are, and some of yeah. them aren't, and we apply no. the rules equally across Crap, the board. But no, no, they don't do that. And they, and just this in the last month, um, the Minister for Education has confirmed that home, uh, home, not home tutors, tutor, English, yeah, home tutors yeah. are all classed as self-employed based on one oh. case in the Social Welfare Appeals Office. So here we have it again. 
we also now know that the scientists with the the um geological survey of ireland they're mm-hmm. all self-employed now we don't even know if there is a test case so far we know of two test cases home tutors and couriers now yeah. it stands to reason that the precedents from those test cases are being used elsewhere and we know this mm-hmm. because the precedent from the the courier case was the owner driver precedent which is being used for employees in rte it's been used for musicians it's been used for english uh, language teachers it's been used for home tutors and no such legislation exists the idea that there is an owner driver model of employment is a complete fiction it doesn't exist mm. at all and revenue are using this illegal um employment status for one reason and one reason only and this is really really important why are revenue and social welfare doing this in conjunction with employers why are they mislabeling thousands upon thousands of employees as self-employed and it's important to understand why it is illegal state aid to selected employers and industries that's what it is and the illegal state aid is that you don't have to pay employers PRSI it's a tax break of over 10% for rogue employers now RTE have that deal this is really really important mm. RTE have a deal with revenue that RTE don't have to pay employers PRSI on up to a quarter of the workforce and it's an illegal tax break that's what it is it's also the same for the music industry there are many industries which don't have this illegal tax break man that's really important to say yeah there are really many industries who are being absolutely screwed into the ground because they don't get this tax break they're yeah. not let off employers PRSI even within industries there is a mix of who gets off and who gets on with this tax break particularly in construction where bogus self-employment is roughly 23% that means that 23% of workers in the construction sector are being employed by employers who have an illegal tax break and that's what they have so the reason you're self-employed is because they believe it it's it will generate jobs they don't care whether good jobs bad jobs whether it costs pensions whether it costs the state which it does it costs the state a billion mm-hmm. a year for bogus self-employment yep. but they're doing it as an illegal tax break and that's against eu laws and that's mm. why they're all lying about it now regina doherty has lied repeatedly about it the chief appeals officer has lied repeatedly and on record in an oireachtas committee how that woman is not arrested i do not know i do not know what she did is fraud in plain sight it's fraud and just so anybody thinks i'm wrong about this bogus self-employment is fraud when the department of social welfare were asked into the oireachtas committee to talk about bogus self-employment they said very clearly it is fraud without a doubt now what's happened in rte is fraud what's happened in the music industry is fraud what's happening in the courier industry is fraud and there isn't a single journalist there isn't a single politician nor a single committee despite having all the evidence of a billion euro a year fraud saying so not one except mm. except mick clifford has said so mick clifford has said this is dirt tax all over again everybody knows this going on and everybody's turning a blind eye to it and you're a victim of it matt the people in rte are victims of it everybody who's bogus self-employed is victims of it and it is the biggest fraud this country has ever seen and until somebody stands up and says stop and you and i are at that matt we're doing a lot of stop right yeah. now and we're doing a lot of it, if you want to explain some of it. Well, just what you're saying on the fraud element there, for, just to go back on that and what it's costing the state. I mean, it's costing the, the billion a year. 
which is the that's the direct loss uh, to the exchequer. Okay, so that's that's in real fiscal terms, but it's it's more than that because that billion that's been lost in employers PRSA and on the tax that I should be paying. I, I must, must things, say it's employers PRSI and commensurate taxes. It's yeah. not just PRSI. There are taxes. There's more. A, a, a worker typically pays uh, twenty grand. The average worker pays. 20 grand a year less in taxes if they're self-employed as opposed yeah. to being an yeah. employee. So there's a big tax loss in this as well. It's huge. It's huge. So you've got that billion for a start, but then you have what that costs the state, what that costs society, because that's a billion that we're not spending on health or a billion that we're not putting on the street to fight crime. And that's a billion that's not been pumped into the schools. Well, I see it as not being spent on special needs children. Absolutely. All those things. I see the PRSI end of it. You're talking the tax end, which could be spent on so much. You're talking, you know, at a billion a year, even the way the children's hospital is going, we could do, you know, one every two years. You'd have to pay in two years, for God's sake, if if you could wipe out bogus self-employment. Yeah, you'd have a children's hospital every two years. We could sponsor children's hospital around Europe. Of course. We could could build one in every country in the bloody world after 30 years. People are looking to say, how are we paying so much tax? We're not getting the commensurate services. That's it. Yeah. You need to put your finger on it. That's how you put your finger on it. Yeah. That's where it is. So we're losing, we're losing that financial terms, but then we're losing this to society. And that's it. That's an even greater cost as far as I'm concerned. We've got, you know, we're in the middle of homeless crisis. We're in the middle of, you know, children with scoliosis and, and troubles with their spines and they can't get a friggin' hospital appointment. And meanwhile, employers, are you know people are trying to fight an appeal against me even though they probably owe the state just on my bogus self-employment in excess of 100 to 150,000 right. if yeah. not more plus penalties you're you're talking a couple of hundred thousand or more uh, they owe that to the state because they've been happy to collude with the state over my employment status for yeah. several years and and they want to fight that and they're they're busy appealing against me even though the grounds of their appeal directly contradict with the initial information oh, uh, look, they sent into scope. Let's be really, I've got to be really honest about this. The Social Welfare Appeals Office makes unlawful decisions to treat groups and classes of workers as self-employed. The senior management of the Department of Social Welfare then instruct the revenue commissioners to collect S-class BRSI based on lawful test cases. Revenue then put them through the PAYE system, the PAYE system for yeah. employees, and deduct tax and PRSI at source from the employer, and all they do is change that the PRSI class from A to S, and that's mm-hmm. the only thing that makes you any different to an employee. All your work conditions, employee. Everything you do, employee. When it comes to being out of work, no, you get nothing. Fuck right Mm -hmm. off. You're self-employed. And that's how most people first find out that they are bogus self-employed. It's such a technical difference that people don't even realize they are bogus self-employed. How do we resolve it? Now, Matt, you and I are going into the... WRC, where we'll be raising some hell. Mm-hmm. We're trying to get into the circuit court where we will raise even more hell. We're not letting the Social Welfare Appeals Office away with squat. I have complaints left, right, and center. You have complaints left, mm-hmm. right, and center. But what are we missing from the picture? Why can't we advance this from where it is, where there are thousands upon thousands of workers now writing to scope, looking for scope section decisions, but everything is getting log jammed in a corrupt social welfare appeals office who is determined to stay corrupt, determined to stay corrupt. How do we get past it, Matt? You have a few ideas on that. The circuit court, isn't it? Circuit court's the obvious way around. I mean, the, it, as it was stated and in, in, in what I quoted earlier from Social Welfare Appeals Office, from the Chief Appeals Officer and the correspondence to me, uh, definitely they have a penchant for erroneous information because she stated that I am unwilling to attend or to participate. I'm not. I'm very willing to participate in this process if the process is fair and just. And the only way this process can be fair and just is that 
after the scope decision, the only option is circuit court. Well, they've said to you no. They've said to you no test cases. Yet Dermot O'Hearn is on record telling the ombudsman they use test cases. So, yeah. the chief appeals officer has lied to you, and this isn't a mistruth or misspeaking. It's a deliberate lie, and it's done so to deceive. That's why it's done. They've mm-hmm. used test cases. They use test cases. We have it in writing. Mm. We have Dermot O'Hearn telling the ombudsman. We have the ombudsman telling me this is a test case. We use this as a test case. So when you asked for a test case, that's what should have been sent to you. But they didn't. Instead, they denied that it existed. Yeah. Now, we can't get the fourth estate beyond littlest stories because this is a complicated issue. And it is a complicated mm-hmm. issue. Same as dirt tax and Anne's backer and all of these things. These frauds are complicated. But at the bottom of this lies a very simple truth. And it's a very simple truth. The Department of Social Welfare and the Revenue, in conjunction with employers, are deliberately misclassifying people as self-employed because it's an illegal task tax break for employers. And that's the simple truth at the bottom of all of this, mm-hmm. you're being told your pension age has to increase. No, your pension age doesn't have to increase. It never did. The money was always there. They've just been stealing it from the pension fund. Mm-hmm. And it's as old as the hills, employers robbing from pension funds. What's new is that the Department of Social Welfare and Revenue are neck deep in helping them to do so. And that's what's new. And how do we get this into a courtroom? I mean, I'm calling them liars. I'm saying what you're doing is fraud, fraud. And nobody is challenging me. Nobody's saying, no, we're not committing fraud. They're just pretending I'm not saying it. Same as you're pretending, they're pretending to you there's no test cases. Yeah. So we can't get accountability because committees can't make rulings because SIPO is lying. Um, because SIPO has refused to act on its own rulings, refused point blank to act on its own rulings. Mm-hmm. We're finding it difficult to advance this, but we are making complaints everywhere we can. Matt, what does the future hold for you now? And before we get that, you, you can tell me no, Matt. Do you want to tell the story about the concert? Yeah, uh, just in very kind of general terms. Though. Now, you can say no to me, Matt, because I know it's very personal and very upsetting to you. Yeah, no, I'm not going to uh, very, very specifics on it. But, you know, I, I, uh, I, I've struggled to find a lot of work this year uh, since the industry reopened. Um, and, and I queried that and I've wondered that. And I've had a few moments here and there of the odd sort of occasional gig and stuff like that. But I knew there were jobs going. I didn't get any phone calls on them, uh, which was strange because a couple of years ago, I, I would have got calls uh, from those particular people, but haven't this year. And it's only recently in the, in the past month that I found out from a friend of mine that essentially of, of one instance where I'd been blacklisted on a concert, told that the, the, the person who's appealing against me, that owns part of the company, um, my previous employer, for want of a better word, um, warned and threatened others that had I, or if I was to appear on the stage along with them, that he would um, basically ensure that the night was a failure. He would discourage other artists from taking part, uh, would pull all support, uh, pull any kind of support and promotion of the show or anything like that. So essentially, you know, the industry, uh, you know, pitching, pitching other people against me. That's right. Um, they, they've basically said that if you walk on stage, they'll pull all their artists, yeah, musicians yeah. off yeah. stage. Yeah. yeah. And that's yeah. a terrible position for a professional musician with a career in professional music. And as I said at the very beginning, it's who you've played with and a lot of people and a lot of people have played with you, Matt. Mm. You're very well known. Now they are yeah. literally taking your entire capacity to play music live away from you. Yes, but they're they're trying to. They're trying to, Mark. But I I, I can tell you this, whether it's uh, 
it then they're not going to succeed. They may succeed in that element, um, and, and that may, you know, I won't have that freedom that I that I have enjoyed for, for several years of performing along with people and friends. Uh, I won't have that freedom moving forward into the future, which is terribly unfortunate. I will still perform music. I will still do that on my own terms and things like that. But no, there's a threat here to do that. And I'm standing up and being vocal about it. But I have known this to have happened to others in the past when they stood up for any types of their rights. I know I know guys who've been sacked. I know guys who were sacked over like in, in, in an instant, gone. Yeah. Let let go from a gig tonight. With they've got family, they've got kids. I know a guy who was, you know, I, I've seen guys in this industry being bullied to leave their jobs. I've seen them that they've had to uh, resort to medication. I, I, I mean, legal medication. They've had to go to doctors. They've been suffering from mental health problems. That's They've right. been suffering from depression. They have been bullied. They have suffered all these things. And I have witnessed this. I have witnessed this at the hands of people who the public adore and think are fantastic, wonderful people. And I have saw this, and it is not right. It is completely not right. I have seen musicians older than me, you know, who were musicians in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. I've seen musicians in their 70s and their 80s die penniless, die paupers, die where their families have had to go to credit unions to get loans to pay for funerals because they have grown up in a system that doesn't protect them. They have been let down by 30 years of government who haven't stood up for them. They have been let down by this tax avoidance, this illegal tax break, this illegal state aid that is going on. They have been let down by the erosion of their rights. They do not have the same rights as other citizens of this country uh, because of bogus self-employment. And no one, no one is standing up and shouting about this. And Martin, this is not just in my industry. This is in so many damn industries. This is not just a few people that are affected. This is thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people that are being affected. And no politician that can do anything about this has the balls to stand up and say it, what it is, and say how they have let us down, how the state has let us down as workers, how it has let its own citizens down by depriving them of a billion plus a year in services and and and, and financial help and everything like that. And I, I can't take any more of it. I'm not going to take any more of it. I'm going to continue to stand. I'm going to continue to stand with the support of you and with the support of other whistleblowers in this country who, who have the courage or the stupidity, I don't know which we have. Only time will tell that. But whatever it is, we have that to stand up in solidarity with each other and say, this is wrong. This cannot continue. Matt McGrathen, we're going to play us out with a bit of your music. Thank you so much for having this conversation. I know it's a difficult battle, buddy. I know more than anybody how difficult the battle is. And I know what it takes to fight this battle. Keep rocking it, Matt. Thanks for having this conversation with me. Cheers, Martin. Thank you. Thank you.